This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, it's Monday night, and I have one of my favorite NFL followers. He is a Titans, just know it all, and not in a negative context. I go to his page whenever I'm like, "Oh, what's going on with the Titans? Are they still doing Mike Malarkey stuff?" No, great. Um, they're on their 19th offensive coordinator in three years. That's cool. How is that going to work? Um, Justin Graver of Music City Miracle is here. He writes for them. He does a lot of great film work. Justin, good evening. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm excited we're able to do this, man. Um, the Tennessee Titans, um, I'm one of those people who just thinks about sports way too much anyway, but I also think about the <laughs> AFC South a lot and just how weird of a division that is. Um, and we'll get into some AFC South stuff and how they stack up. But my biggest thing, and this is a guy that you've watched for years now, it's kind of crazy how long he's already been in the league. But my first question is Marcus Mariota the guy still in Tennessee? That is probably to be determined, but for 2019, the answer is absolutely yes, he is. Why is that? What are you seeing that makes you pause, that gives Titans fans a lot of uh, uneasy feelings about the future with Marcus Mariota? What has been this up and down experience? How would you describe the Marcus Mariota era in Tennessee? I think that so far he has shown everything that you need to see from a young quarterback to give you the confidence that you need to think that they can be like a franchise guy and, and lead your team for years. But the problem is that he's, he's been inconsistent. I think now Titans fans kind of fall into one of a couple of different camps, which is either you believe in Mariota, you support him and you want to see it work out for him, but you're concerned about his, inconsistency and mostly the injuries and most of his inconsistencies have been because of the injuries because he either has been hurt in 2016 he broke his leg in half and had to rehab for the whole offseason so we were wondering is that going to affect his development it's only a third year like he needs to be on the field with a new offensive coordinator getting back in the system blah, blah 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 all those things so you say some of those inconsistencies are because he was injured or else he tried to play injured like last season when he had the nerve injury in week one and he lost feeling in his throwing hand and then he played through it. And even in that game, he tried to come back in that game and the next two passes he threw were interceptions. So you're like, okay, is he that bad that he's throwing interceptions or is it the injuries that are causing the interceptions? But either way, if you're not in that camp, then you're on the other side, which is that he gets hurt too much. It doesn't matter how good he is. If he can't stay on the field, then what's the, like, there's no use even trying Jake Locker all over again, blah, blah, blah. There's, so I think that most Titans fans are either uh, fed up with Mariota and think that maybe he can do it, but he's too injured, so it doesn't matter, or else they are holding out hope that he can just put together a 16-game season and that by doing so, that will give him the lift he needs both in his own psychology and his own development and the consistency to just be able to play without getting hurt for 16 games should 
should do it. In, in my opinion, if he can play 16 games this season, he will be signed to a long-term contract extension, regardless of how he plays. Like I think that all it will take for him to be successful is to just stay healthy. And the rest of his problems will be worked out in practice and by actually continuing to develop. Is he a guy you would pay though? Because it seems like he is on, this is like one of those tough things that the Cowboys are now facing with Dak. The Bengals faced it with Andy Dalton. Mm -hmm. Um, Kirk Cousins fell in this camp where you're like, okay, we like this guy. We we're just, you need a lot around him. Like Andy Dalton's fine. If you have AJ green and a bunch of talent around him, you have a great offensive line, a great defense. It can work. If you have enough talent around that, 15th ranked quarterback 14th whatever somewhere in that zone you can win a super bowl like that but you need that right mixture of elite talent around those guys and the titans um i mean just looking at the wide receiver situation um and then when delaney walker goes down it's like oh god like what is marcus mario gonna do here but um i don't know i think it's interesting like you i wonder if there is something to just being like look we like him but would Titans fans actually be mad if they were just like, we're not paying him. Like we can't like, even if he does play 16 games, and they miss the playoffs or something. Would you still be like, well, we just, we got to keep this going. We like him enough. Who knows? Or do you just say, you know what? We're not like, you're not ever going to be a top 10 quarterback in this league. And it's just not worth it to pay somebody this kind of money for us to go eight and eight, seven and nine, nine and seven. And, just pray that you survive because it's like, if he played behind the Houston Texans offensive line, Marcus Mariota's dead. I think yeah. he's actually six feet under right now. Um, <laughs> so good for him getting drafted by a different AFC South team. But yeah, thank God. I, I don't know. Does that make sense? Is that a fair assessment of Marcus Mariota right now? I think that's pretty fair. I mean, he's definitely not on the Aaron Rodgers type of level where he's going to elevate everyone. Or, or I guess Andrew Luck might be one of the better examples of this right now because they went to the playoffs mm-hmm. last year. They won a playoff game. And outside of T.Y. Hilton, I mean, most people probably can't name who, who – I don't know off the top of my head who their second leading receiver was this season. You know, like I doubt most people even know, but Mariota at the was same Eric time, Ebron? Eric Ebron, he definitely led in touchdowns. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a good question. I really have no idea off the top of my head. Was Ryan Grant there? Or did, was that was the weird Ryan stuff? Grant. I don't remember now. Dontrell Inman was a big part of their season. Inman, That's who it was. Inman had that great year. It, I think it was Dontrell Inman. That sounds right. Their second leading receiver was Inman. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, this is playoffs. Wait, what the heck? Right. He was okay. great in that playoff game. They targeted him a bunch, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, but back to Mariota. He, uh, so I don't think he's on Andrew Luck's level at all, where he can just elevate his teammates to that degree. But at the same time, the 2016 season, the Titans' receiving options were arguably worse than they will be in 2019. I mean, I would say definitely worse. Uh, 2016, it was Richard Matthews at the number one receiver, Kendall Wright, and like, I guess Delaney Walker was the number one target, but the 2016 Titans offense had a pretty good offensive line and a successful running game. And it, I think that those are the things that it will take for Mariota to be successful in 2017 with the same coaching staff, Mike Malarkey, they kind of ran the, the, uh, a very similar scheme and mostly with situational play calling. I did a lot of looking at this kind of stuff in the, if I can notice just in casual rewatches of the Titans that they're running the same types of plays in certain situations, then you better believe that defensive coordinators and the people who work for the defense coordinators who are studying the tape and writing down these tendencies and charting all these situational play calls are going to figure out what the Titans are doing, right? So 2017 run game was horrible, constantly faced with third and longs, and the offense was bad, one of the worst in the NFL. Last season, for the first half of the year, the Titans were stuck trying to make Deion Lewis the primary back. And he was averaging like 3.5 yards per carry or something. He was like 31st out of 33 qualified running backs and success rate was really not working. And then they made the switch to Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry goes on a tear and the whole offense improves. But you don't really see any improvement from Mariota over the course of the end of last year because they were doing this thing with Derrick Henry where they literally didn't need to throw the ball in the uh, in his like breakout game of 2018, Henry was against the Jags. Henry ran for four touchdowns. <laughs> What's Mariota going to do? Um, in the next week against the Giants, Henry ran for 150 yards and two more touchdowns. So I think that uh, you, you keep that running game going, and it's going to open up everything else. And it, that's kind of obvious. And that's how like what the entire Rams offense is based on. If you shut down the rushing attack, then 
their whole offense starts to struggle and stagnate because it's all based on play action. And it all comes from that. And I think that that's kind of the, the situation that Mariota needs to operate under. I don't think that he necessarily needs great receivers or players that are going to get open and separate quickly off the line of scrimmage because he's got guys like Delaney Walker and they added Adam Humphreys and Corey Davis. I mean, that's a pretty solid top three options for receiving. It's not top 10 or top five in the NFL, but it's probably above league average there. Um, assuming Delaney Walker can be at least 90% of what he was pre-injury now going into his age 35 season. But you keep up. God, uh, that's incredible. He's entering age 35 season. Yeah. It is, is he like one of the most underrated tight ends of all time? I feel like he is. I feel like he he's one be. of those dudes who like you just, we're going to look back and you're going to see some of this just like seven year run. You're just like, how did we never talk about this guy? Oh, right. He was in the Titans for some <laughs> Sad, but true. And I think Gerald Casey falls into that kind of as well as just super underrated guys because they play for a team that doesn't get a lot of coverage and hasn't been good enough to get a lot of coverage over the last, you know, 15 years or so. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I think that that's the kind of quarterback Mariota needs to be is, is the one that you build up the running game, let him run the play action, kind of Matt Ryan ish in a sense where he'll execute the game plan His I think his worst trait is playing out of structure when a play breaks down and he's rolling outside the pocket. He showed a lot of improvement in that area last year and, and would actually get patient and wait for people to get open. But before that, it was usually like roll out, throw on the run or just take off. Um, and I, I think that if you keep the structure in place and you give him the running game, that's, that's how you unlock Marcus Mariota's most successful abilities. It kind of reminds me of Alex Smith a little bit because Alex Smith the same way when he's in that structure, he's in the right incubator. He's great. He's really good for schemes. Like he's a really good player. Um, he's the exact opposite of Patrick Mahomes in a lot of ways. But um, I, I think about Mariota, I think about Alex Smith. It's just, it kind of reminds me of those early years um, and just him having to go through like 19 different offensive coordinators in San Francisco and you wonder how much that's done in his development and what he could ever be mm-hmm. down the line. And I get a lot of just Marcus Mariota, Alex Smith vibes there where I, I don't know, the great college quarterback played in a really QB friendly scheme, great offensive mind coach, and then gets the NFL, gets bait, beat around a little bit, loses some confidence, just has to learn a new offense every year and you just he's becomes like a what if where you're like oh people are going to look at it as like oh look this guy played in the spread it didn't work didn't translate and we're like well maybe there's a little bit more to it than just um transitioning uh from a more qb friendly scheme in college but i don't know i think he's he might be on the verge of going down the uh the alex smith thing where it's like he'll probably always be a good quarterback he'll be in the league teams will Mm -hmm. talk themselves into him being a Mm -hmm. stopgap quarterback for two to three years and they'll be like all right we need our next guy and he's just that's a great career like you can make a lot of money like that but i i don't know i just i would not i hope i'm not going to piss off a lot of titans fans but i have seen nothing at to this point that makes me think that he's still somebody i would pay top 10 money and really invest heavily because i just i think there's always going to be another quarterback down the line like just go you know what Dwayne Haskins this year. That's what yeah. we're doing. We're moving on. <laughs> so I don't think that I, 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 I get that as a, like, like just from a theoretical standpoint, I, I, and I agree that it seems like, and I could see that happening. And it definitely, if he just has a mediocre year kind of thing, but at the same time, Mariota is still the guy who led the Titans to their first playoff win in 17 years. And it wasn't just a playoff win. It was a comeback win on the road, actually statistically or, I guess, yeah, statistically, the largest road comeback in the history of NFL playoffs, led by Mariota. And what's really remarkable about that, and this has never been truly confirmed, but there are a lot of reports that say sometime in the middle of the second quarter, Mariota said, I'm going to start running no huddle and call the plays now. And like apparently the report is that he called the plays for two and a half quarters of that game while quarterbacking the team, while leading them on that comeback. And some good luck happened. Like he threw a touchdown to himself that probably should have been intercepted in the end zone. And Derrick Henry had a 60 yard touchdown run, but Mariota actually uh, changed the play before the snap reading the defensive front to the handoff that led to Derrick Henry's 60 yard touchdown. So my point is, I don't think NFL teams operate on as much of a, that kind of looking ahead, looking at what could be better because they're very risk averse 
on yeah in a general from a general standpoint they they have seen Mariota go to the playoffs and win a game right so if I'm a GM you have to weigh like this is a quarterback that can do that under the right circumstances versus the complete and utter unknown of a draft pick if you stick with Mariota and he floats floats with the playoffs every year the GM is probably keeping his job and the head coach is probably keeping his job for a pretty good amount of time and unless they just really can't figure it out but if you take a chance on a new quarterback that you think is going to be better and he's not better, even if he's just the same fans and people and the owners, and will start to judge those kinds of moves. And it's just, it's a big risk. And I don't know that NFL GMs really play that game so much when they don't have a sure thing on the table. It's interesting that the chiefs did it because they traded Alex Smith before they really knew what they had in Mahomes. I guess they kind of knew because they'd spent a lot of time with him and they'd seen him in practice every day and obviously, but they didn't really know what he was going to be. And Mahomes is a special case. I don't think there's not just another Mahomes out there. That's the problem that NFL teams face is that there's all these quarterbacks that are in this mediocre range, but what is really better? I mean, Trevor Lawrence will probably be better, but that's 2021. And there's going to be such a crazy sweepstakes to get him to be the worst team in the league uh, two years from now. that I don't know if yeah. it's worth it to like try to go for it from this, from right now. It looks like the dolphins are maybe playing that game already, but uh, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I just, uh, for a mul- it, it, that's a complicated one for a multitude of reasons. And um, the league, just the way they, the coaching carousel, I thought was pretty gross across the board. And especially what happened with Steve Wilkes in Arizona. <laughs> and part of that was putting out a top 10 uh, worst offensive DVOA team of all time. And <laughs> in today's world, like you just can't do the, Like you didn't even get another year to figure that out. Like he just, he, it's like, why couldn't you have just hired Cliff Kingsbury as his offensive coordinator? Yeah. And just give him another year. Why yeah, not? Um, that would have made more defense, sense to me. Right. Uh, you right. know what's crazy to me is all these teams, and this has happen, been happening pretty frequently, is they just happened in Arizona, just happened in New York, happened in Tennessee a few years ago. It's happened in a few other places. As soon as I say it, you might think of a couple others, where they draft a quarterback and then one year later fire either the head coach or the GM or both. And now they're whoever they hire is the new head coach rather than – like waiting a year to draft your quarterback or finding your coach a year earlier. Now you have a pair that didn't choose each other, a QB yeah. that is forced upon your new head coach. So, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in Arizona because that's the only team that is actually, that there's a rumors that they're going to do something about it and not just <laughs> stick with the quarterback that was already on the roster, but Adam Gates with Sam Darnold. It happened in Tennessee. Ken Wisenhunt drafted Marcus Mariota. And then they fired him after one year and hired Mike Malarkey. It's just crazy to me that, that teams will, do that with the most important position just like not let their you know new head coach choose them <laughs> um the titans promoting a made-up coach as their new offensive coordinator to replace matt lafleur you cannot confirm or deny right that arthur smith is an actual football coach. <laughs> i actually wrote a really long piece um about arthur smith a week before he was high this is one of my prouder moments as a titans like writer person is that i uh wrote a really long detailed back story on who the heck is this Arthur Smith guy and why is his name being rumored as a potential offensive quarter candidate. And I did a lot of research on him and I looked into his background and obviously we can't know anything until he gets out there and calls plays, but I'm, I'm on board. I'm ready. King Arthur. We got the memes ready. King Arthur, King of the South. <laughs> well, he wasn't even like a Matt LaFleur guy. Like he was there nope. before LaFleur. Like it's kind of, so it's a new offense again. It's come, it's, yeah. is it going to be closer to the Mike Malarkey offense from a couple years ago than what Matt LaFleur was trying to do? Because if so, like I, it was successful, obviously <clears throat> to an extent, I'm not sure how sustainable that model is in today's NFL, but like you understood it. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess like the tight end position has been great uh, for Tennessee and he's done great work sure. with Delaney Walker. So maybe that's part of the reason they did it. But um, his dad's also the founder of FedEx. Correct. So <laughs> um, he's going to be okay if it doesn't work out, I think. Because um, FedEx, according to my latest um, stock updates, which I get all the time, it's FedEx <laughs> is okay. So I think um, Arthur Smith is going to be just fine. 
Um, but it yeah. seemed like it was, I, I don't know. I, I'm always dubious about those kind of um, yeah. hires and those promotions and how that works where it's like, Oh, another offense for Malarkey. I, I mean, uh, for Mariota. And I just, I don't know, man. So Smith has been with the team since, uh, for eight years. So I think since 2008 or 2009, um, which is really cool because he's been through a lot or maybe it was 2011. He's been through a lot of coaches. Uh, coaching staffs on the team and a lot of offensive coordinators. He's been there since before Mariota was even drafted. He's the only coach that Marcus has ever had that has been with the team for his whole career. Um, Cause he's always had coordinators that randomly came in at certain other, I guess Malarkey counted cause he was on the on staff. Anyway, uh, what's interesting is that he's seen everything that doesn't work <laughs> as well as everything that does work. Um, he probably has a closer relationship with Mariota than any of his previous coordinators because they've been there together for so long. The most encouraging aspect of keeping uh, an in-house hire is that the language of the offense won't change. I think that's the hardest part for a new, for, of learning a new offense is before you can even understand any of the plays, you have to understand how to talk about the plays and the concepts and the routes and the formations. And obviously every playbook has their own verbiage. So the fact that they're keeping the verbiage from Matt LaFleur's offense will help everyone. The signing of Roger Saffold, the left guard who was like the number two rated guard by Pro Football Focus last year, um, is a signal to me that A, they recognize that the offensive line is a key element that needs to improve, and B, that they are going to stick with the mostly outside zone in, uh, running scheme because Saffold is a lot better off in a scheme where you can get out and move like that and would be in a power scheme. So they may be a little more multiple in the run game than they were under LaFleur, who was almost exclusively outside zone uh, and inside zone. But I think they will still stick with that as the base of the offense. And then it's going to be really, really cool to see what Arthur, Arthur Smith brings along because he's going to be incorporating stuff that he knows, according to the coaches in the press conferences and stuff, things that he knows have worked for Mariota since he got into the league in 2015 that, were part of Ken Wisenhunt's offense that Mike Murphy didn't run, that Matt LaFleur didn't run, and then same thing for every other scheme that he's been a part of so far. So I think it'll be cool to see someone who wasn't like, like you look at the the Sean McVay disciples, like Matt LaFleur, like Zach Taylor, who went to Cincinnati, um, who have been in this one system, learning this one system since they became uh, uh, assistant coach in the league, right? And they've stuck with this one guy and they followed him around or whatever. And, so they really know that scheme, but they also only really know that scheme. And I think that can be a limiting factor because when LaFleur came into Tennessee, he said all the right things about how it's not about play plays. It's about players. And we're going to put these people in the right position to help them all succeed. And like, that's what the offense is all about is putting people in position. And then he comes in here and runs the same exact thing that Kyle Shanahan ran in Atlanta with uh, two tight end, three tight end heavy sets and um, different formations of personnel where we, after Delaney Walker gets hurt and our top tight end is John o. Smith, who most people don't, have probably never heard of. And um, you have uh, Anthony Ferkser and other undrafted free agents behind him as, in the tight end room and Luke Stalker as your primary blocker. And you're still out here running the two tight end sets that require lots of key blocks from those tight ends in the run game. And it just wasn't really working. And we, we are sitting here wondering why are we not putting players in positions to succeed? Why are we handing it off to a fullback who's never carried the ball in his entire NFL career on fourth and one with the games potentially on the line? Like these are the kinds of things that we're wondering. So with a guy like Zach Taylor or Sean McVay or Matt LaFleur, they're coming in and they're installing their system. And if you don't have the players to fit in that system, too bad, you know, it's just not going to run as well, but they're not going to alter it. So I think a guy like Arthur Smith, um, who came up, he's a through, hybrid. He's a hybrid. He's got it all. He, he, I mean, this started is with Munchak. Hope, right? like how many people even know that he got hired by Munchak and Munchak's been gone forever. He actually got hired, um, with the Redskins first, um, when he was finishing up as a grad assistant. Uh, mm. because his, I think because his dad is a part owner of the Washington oh, Redskins. Of course. It, he went to Georgetown, <laughs> Georgetown prep. I saw like, what is, what is this? Right. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. It's a so, great underdog story. And I then have to say. he, he, so he got on with Washington as a defensive quality control on defense. 
And then when Jerry Gray came to Tennessee to be the defensive back coach or defense coordinator, I can't remember now, uh, he was like, hey, I worked with this dude in Washington, Arthur Smith. You've got to bring him. He was awesome. So he brings Arthur Smith along, and then they get fired, and the new coaching staff is like, all right, we're going to interview everyone. We're probably not going to keep everyone because we want to keep, we want to bring in our own guys. But every single staff has kept Arthur Smith. So make, make of that what you will. He must be a smart guy. Or his dad's pretty powerful. And it's just like, <laughs> I dare you to fire my son. I dare you. I hadn't considered that. That's <laughs> possible. <laughs> um, last thing I want to wrap up here with, because I, I feel like I could talk about all kinds of Titan stuff with you all night, but we do have to wrap up here soon. Um, I want to throw a couple of things at you really quickly. Mike Vrabel, is he the coach of the Tennessee Titans two years from now? Yes. Okay. Um, if you had to pick one reason more than anything else, why do you think Matt LaFleur and Marcus Marietta were not a perfect fit with one another? I think a lot of that stuff that I just kind of rambled on about, about how uh, yeah. he, he doesn't, he didn't do enough to recognize players' primary strengths and then put them in a position to succeed. And I think that included the quarterback. Okay. Defensive holes. What should we look for in the draft uh, from the Titans this year? I very much want the Titans to spend their first round pick on an interior offensive lineman, Garrett Bradbury, for being specific. But if they go another direction, I think you're looking at uh, defensive linemen like a Christian Wilkins, Jeffrey Simmons, Jerry Tillery type, or an edge rusher. I don't think Brian Burns will fall, but there's been a lot of buzz about that he might. Brian Burns, Cleveland Farrell, um, one of those guys, Chase Vinovich in, in the second round, or Charles Amenahu or somebody. So D-line and edge. I think they're pretty set in the secondary. They have a pretty good linebacking core. They they might go uh, try to find some depth at those positions or special teamers on day three. But I think in the first two days, you're looking at edge or D-line if they go defense. Amy Adams strunk. Good owner or bad owner? We call her mom. So It's a good sign. Best owner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, AFC South, how do you think it goes this fall? What's the order? All right. Uh, here's my unbiased opinion. Colts, mm-hmm. Titans, um, Texans, Jaguars. And here's my biased opinion. Titans, Colts, Texans, <laughs> um, Jaguars. See, I have, I have yeah. Colts won. I, if Andrew Luck, like this team's just going to be better. I, I just, unless yep. he gets hurt, this team's winning the division. And Chris Ballard. Like, and it's scary. Yeah. Chris Ballard has been phenomenal. And he's probably just going to do that again this offseason. So, yeah, it's scary. Jags, I could not sell any more of that stock. Uh, I would bet my life on them finishing fourth in this division this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Texans is weird because like they've given up a shit ton of pressure. Um, Deshaun Watson still staying alive. Like That offensive line has not been a- improved or addressed. Um, it's a lot of DeAndre Hopkins and him, and just we all don't really like Bill O'Brien and mm-hmm. like that. If he just we want someone different running that, I, I don't know. It, so it's tough. I go back and forth in the Titans and yeah, the Texans. Texans, but right now I have the Texans just because I'm more understandable and in, in DeAndre Hopkins believer. That's it. That's all it is. I mean, it's understandable. I, I don't think I would realistically expect anyone based on last season, to have the Titans over the Texans. The Titans are such an unknown right now. No idea what Arthur Smith's going to be. Don't really have an idea what Mariota's going to be. I mean, <laughs> the Titans are, are pretty much an enigma right now. The Texans, though, okay, last year I said that the Jaguars were my – I had the Jaguars and Raiders as my top regression candidate teams last year. I put my money where my mouth was, bet on both of them to not reach their win totals in Vegas, and won both those bets. This year – my top candidate for regression is the Houston Texans for a couple of reasons. Number one, and this is usually the, the biggest indicator of regression is a record in close games. And I don't remember their record in, in close games off the top of my head, but I do remember them getting extremely lucky a lot of times towards the end of games last season when they went on that incredible 11 game win streak that was like so undeserved. And I know that I sound like a bitter biased fan when I say that. And I am a little bit, but also like the win against the Broncos where Vance Joseph uh, doesn't run any more plays when he could have tried to gain 10 to 15 more yards with time on the clock and timeouts remaining. And he decided just to kick a 50 plus yard field goal and missed and they lost or the game against the bills where uh, Nathan Peterman comes in with two minutes to go and throws two interceptions in the final minute of the game, including a pick six. So the Texans can win. 
there was a lot of games like that on the Texan schedule last year. And towards the end of the year, their luck started to run out a little bit. They haven't made any improvements to the offensive line. They lost, I think, four starters on defense, and they replaced them with, like, Tayshaun Gibson, who's a worse version of uh, Tyron Matthew, and um, the slot cornerback Bradley Roby Coleman, who's a worse version of Kareem Jackson. So all the, like, I just, I'm just, i pretty out on the Texans uh, <laughs> this this season based on their performance last season. They overachieved a lot last season. I don't even think they should have made the playoffs last year. They got spanked in their first playoff game against the Colts. And then um, with the offseason moves, I feel like they've gotten worse, not better this year. So I'm, I, I'm like six wins from the Texans would not surprise me if that's all they manage this year. Hot take. Okay. That is. <laughs> all right. That's fair. Um, anything you would like to plug before we get out of here? Um, I'm working on a video for uh, football and other F words podcast. Go follow them at F words pod. That's <laughs> Titans related football podcast. I think. Perfect. Well, if you are not already following ah, Titans film room, you really need to, it's, it's a great, great Twitter feed, great insight. And also read him on musiccitymiracles.com. Um, this has been great. I really do appreciate you taking the time, Justin. Chase, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. It's been, it's been fun talking Titans with you. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, and I'm now joined by one of my favorite NFL guys. He's been away for a little bit. He's been, like, I I, I want to assume you're in, like, this incredibly um, just, put, put, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, you're in a bunker, right, at, at PFF <laughs> headquarters in Cincinnati. Like, you're, do you have windows in your draft room that you're doing all your draft review and tape review? How How is the situation there? There are windows, but at times it okay. does feel like a bunker. There's some long days in the pre-draft process, but it's a lot of fun for sure. Okay. Um, what has been your favorite thing about uh, going through some deep uh, tape study of these uh, first rounders and just uh, really just the the draft prospects for 2019 altogether? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done a lot of tape study looking at you know 2018. 2018 tape has been great. I've also had a lot of fun watching 2017 and 2016 tape of 2019 NFL draft prospects, seeing how much they improve or even how good they were a year ago. You know, you look at guys that are entering, you know, this year's draft and obviously a lot of people are turning on 2018 tape, but you turn back to 2017 and you see guys that were very, very good in 2017 and able to maintain that in 2018. That's fantastic from the, from a tape study standpoint. In addition to that, I've interviewed, maybe 25, 30 guys in this draft. And it's been great to kind of get the intellectual, personal side you know, of these players. I think that a lot of people put emphasis on the tape. I mean, here at PFF, we're looking at grades and stats, but getting able to talk to these guys and find out who they are as people has been another fantastic part. But do we really need any of that if we have the wonder look? That's all we need, right? <laughs> I, I would argue no. I, I would say okay. we definitely need that. I, I think you know, it's, it's important to understand a player's ability to get better. And I think that comes with, you know, how he's committed to improving. Does he know how to get better? Does he want to get better? And I think that's what I look for mostly. Talking to Ben Banigou, an edge defender at a TCU, very raw prospect, but arguably the highest ceiling at that position with his 10-yard split. You look at his broad really? jump, his length, his athleticism. This guy is a raw piece of clay that didn't even get taught how to play the position until a couple years ago barely he said at tcu it's very scheme first you're learning how to beat the opponent not necessarily how to get better from a technical standpoint he was a transfer to tcu didn't have a lot of good coaching before then i think this is the guy if you put him with a pass rush specialist and that's what he spoke to as well put me with a pass rush specialist that knows how to get me better and i will get better and i think that's just fantastic to hear from somebody rather than sometimes you'll hear from other draft prospects i'm the best in this class I don't, I don't know what I need. Maybe run defense. That, you know, not really talking about how they want to get better. Hearing that from Ben Banigou is exactly what you wanted to hear from a guy like him. So if he goes to the Falcons, he's screwed is what you're saying. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I, I think you partner him up with a pass rush specialist, whether that's a current NFL player or a known defensive line coach that knows how to make better pass rushers through technique and in, increased tools. This guy could be special, but if you put him in a situation where he's learning scheme again, there isn't a lot of time put into getting him better from a technical standpoint. I think there's a chance that he doesn't you know, meet expectations. However, I'm really excited to see where he goes and see him get better. Okay. Um, 
So you mentioned something before we get into the other topics that I wanted to touch on. Like you, the guys that you were going through 2017 to 2018 that we forget because it's just a couple of years away now. Who have you seen that have made that jump that people haven't really noticed has actually improved a lot since 2017? You, you look at Deont- Deontay Johnson out of Toledo. He's not necessarily a guy that's improved significantly to 2018, but you look at him when he was with Logan Woodside. Dude was outstanding. You know, he, Logan Woodside is a great quarterback. I know he's not in the NFL, but he was great compared to the other quarterbacks you see coming out of Toledo. You see him when someone's able to put the ball on him, feed him the right targets, make the right reads. He was outstanding. You watch his 2018 tape. He's obviously very good, but you see that he's not reaching the ceiling. And maybe that's why not a lot of people are talking about him. But you turn on that 2017 tape. It's incredible to see how good he was with a capable quarterback, a quarterback that got looks from NFL circles. And then from a guy that's improved significantly, Devin White. Devin White's a consensus top 10 pick. I think everyone's seen that in mock drafts and among a lot of analysts. But you see how much he got better from 2017 to 2018. It makes you feel good about how raw he is currently. He still needs to improve significantly. You want to see instincts get better, tackling get better, certain technique block shedding get better. But seeing how much better he did get from 2017 to 2018, you have to think, you know, with an NFL team, with NFL coaches, this is a kid that's going to get better. And his ceiling, you talk about Ben Banigou's ceiling, his ceiling at linebacker is absurd given his athleticism, raw speed, quickness, burst, etc. Yeah. And if uh, Deion Jones is any indication, it turns out drafting these linebackers out of uh, LSU the last couple of years, it, it could be a good thing um, if for your NFL team. So there's something that came out this week that um, I think enraged both Giants fans and 49er fans in that um, John Lynch and Dave Gettleman had been talking for weeks and then just stopped talking and then he went to Cleveland. And it's kind of weird because uh, we know the draft capital that John Lynch has assembled in San Francisco and then uh, John Dorsey obviously being a very aggressive general manager in the last couple of years and just the way he goes about stuff. Um, he wants to build a winner now, like that new model of just like, all right, we have an elite quarterback on a rookie deal, let's win now. And it's 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 just how a lot of teams are operating but um the the 49ers are a little bit different because they've already paid their quarterback and they traded for him and they're also kind of in well we need to start winning soon um but we have the rams in our division and we have the seahawks in our division so it's a little bit more complicated and the nfc is just deeper than the afc but um i was kind of stunned that not really i guess maybe not stunned from the giants perspective because if you've learned anything from dave gettleman he just He's a odd general manager, and I think that's being nice about a lot of this stuff. But like, for him to just not take a bet, like, it, I wonder if it was just like a conference thing where he's like, I just don't want to trade OBJ to someone in the same conference, and we have to see him in the playoffs with Jimmy G maybe this fall. Like, they rather send him to Cleveland where it's away, out of sight, out of mind. But like, I don't know. Like, you would assume that John Lynch is an aggressive GM as well. And they have just more draft capital. And it seems like by all indications, the giants could have gotten more. Cause it's not like the haul they got for OBJ was great. And I think the four ers could have done, given them more. And I think that fit would have even been maybe more intriguing because the 49ers just don't have a lot of t- depth at that wide receiver spot. They have a lot of depth at running back. They have a lot of depth at offensive line. Now we, they've already invested in Jimmy G. I like Pettis and it seems like he's poised for a breakout. You have George Kittle. Give me that every day. And I just think that ultimately puts the 49ers, like if you had any doubts about them winning 10 games this year, you give them OBJ. That team's winning 10 games, maybe even winning a division. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting to see when that story came out and hard to find the rationale behind the certain, you know, behind what actually happened. And I think with San Francisco, they had to been pushing hard on it. Obviously giving up the number two overall pick had to been difficult. However, if it were talks, you know, you know, going away on the Giants side of things, it really doesn't make a ton of sense. I think with San Francisco 49ers, you could start to build a case why they wouldn't want to throw the, throw that number two overall pick because, you know, at number two, you kind of already know which player's coming your way. Kyler Murray's probably going number one. So you have your pick at the best defensive player in the draft, yeah. whether you think it's Nick Bosa, Quinn Williams. And then the, the conversation becomes a little bit easier for them in a sense that do we want OBJ or do we want Nick Bosa or Quinn Williams? Probably the two guys that would be in that spot. And I think, San Francisco, it start, you could start to build a case for, yeah, we don't want to trade that away. But for the Giants, I mean, to get number two, maybe you have a chance at a quarterback, quarterback of the future that you desperately need. However, trying to find the rationale for some of the decisions that are coming out of the New York Giants you know, front office, it, it's, a, it's a hard task. 
Yeah. Um, schematically, do you think he's a better fit in Cleveland than in San Francisco, or do you think him with Kyle Shanahan and what they what they run would have been better for him? It's hard to say because I think I really, really like what Freddie Kitchens brought to the Browns. He was very creative, and I think what mm-hmm. you saw immediately is that he recognized the strengths on the offensive side of the ball and tried to use them as much as possible. He had three running backs in a formation at one point in one of those games with D- D- um, Nick Chubb, David, not David Johnson, Duke Johnson, and uh, the other guy that they have there, I can't think of his name right now, but they tried to bring in three running backs around this full house look, and I think he's just trying to get as many talented players on the field. I think you throw OBJ his way and where he's going to be able to put him in that offense, I'm very excited to see what he's going to do with a very capable quarterback, a PFF favorite, and I think you know that, Baker Mayfield. Offensive line's getting better. I am so excited to see OBJ with Freddie Kitchens, Baker Mayfield, Nick Chubb. I mean, it, it goes on and on. It's a very exciting offense over there. Yeah, I mean, the offensive line is also, I think, uh, PFF had uh, the Browns were top five in pass blocking efficiency this past season, which is interesting to me because it did seem like they took a step back. But also we learned the AFC North is a pass blocking dominant group like Baltimore and Pittsburgh were all in there and Pittsburgh was number one. And I want to mention, I guess this is a natural transition to Pittsburgh, but Mike Munchak no longer in Pittsburgh. And it's something that um, has not been talked about it don't think enough uh, just him being away and if we've learned anything especially like this was under far more difficult circumstances but the absence of tony sperano last year from minnesota um we don't know how much that played a role but i mean he was great and by all indications just a great offensive line coach and losing him in the circumstances just brutal and they had like what the 29th or i think it was 28th uh worst pass blocking efficiency and they invested a bunch of money in their quarterback and their season tanked it's just it's such a critical thing that now the Steelers are in unknown waters without Munchak, and you already have all this other offseason turmoil stuff. Um, are you? Should we expect the Steelers group to no longer be the best pass blocking uh, offensive line in the NFL in 2019? I think it's hard to recreate, you know, or repeat having that much success because there's a lot of variables. It means five guys that one have to stay healthy two kind of maintain that such a high level of pass blocking year over year. You see that with defense, the variability is strong because so many moving parts injuries have happened, but from just losing the offensive line coach, I don't think the talent gets worse. I don't think the offensive linemen in that, you know, in that locker room get worse. I think it's, does the scheme change? Do you move on from what worked last year in terms of what the pass protection is called and all of that? You need to make sure that the, the scheme remains intact because they thrived in that way. You see that with other offensive lines. When schemes change, you can lose that. Or, or if a key piece goes down, you can lose that high-end pass blocking efficiency. And I think that is worrisome more than Mike Munchak leaving. If, if, if Mike Munchak, you know, how, how good he was at coaching and all of that, I think there's, there's some play to that. However... It's all in the scheme. If the scheme changes or an injury, that's when you see this thing go down. But if scheme remains intact and they they can stay healthy, that front five can stay healthy, I think you could see you know top five pass blocking efficiency in, in 2019. Who's most likely to drop out of the top five of those big three in the AFC North? Uh, it's hard to say. That's that's a good question. Maybe the, maybe the Baltimore Ravens only because they won't be throwing mm. the ball this year. I don't know. <laughs> that's a factor. I also think Orlando Brown, how much success he had in year one, was very surprising. And I'm not just now I'm not just saying that because he tested poorly. I think he was a guy that coming out of Oklahoma that we weren't super high on. And I think there's maybe more variability in his play that year over year that you won't see similar success. However, I love Ron Lee Stanley. Yonda is obviously a, a, you know, one of the greatest cards of all time. I think there's a lot of stability in those guys. Orlando Brown can falter. You start to have some, you know, some bad play from that tackle position. Things go south. Obvious, and obviously, if they're not throwing the ball anymore, you know, people get rusty in pass protection. I don't know, but I mean, obviously, obviously exaggerating that. I think the Ravens will throw the ball some, but I think of the three, I could see them going down. They're going to throw the ball a little bit because they have just the most like intriguing tight end group. I've ever seen like just the amount of talent they have at tight end. Like Hayden Hurst is just a forgotten guy now. You have the other Oklahoma dude. What's his name? I'm blanking on. Is it Andrews? Yes, Mark Andrews. Andrews. Mark Andrews. Yeah, it never sounds right. It doesn't sound like a tight end name. I, I don't know why, but Mark Andrews just does not work as a tight end name. Um, and then you never can never roll out Crockett Gilmore making an appearance and having a good two week stretch <laughs> in Baltimore. Can never roll that out. Um, and I, I'll, I'll always remember that dude because he saved one of my fantasy football seasons, um, just going off for a couple of weeks. And it was just, it was one of my favorite things. Cause it's a great name too. Um, 
So I want to transition a little bit to another DC-related team. Josh Rosen, it seems by all accounts now, is probably going to be a Washington Redskin, and that QB room gets even more um, complicated uh, with Colt McCoy, Case Keenum, Alex Smith, and now maybe Josh Johnson, who could roll that out, oh. and then just add more. Let's just add seven quarterbacks in this room. But um, <laughs> what do you make schematically of Jay Gruden um, bringing in uh, Josh Rosen? Would he even start? Would it be Josh Rosen's job, or would it be Case Keenum? Who would you believe more in based on... like? It's hard to evaluate what we saw from Rosen last year, but did you see enough to make you think this guy can still be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. It, it, again, and I, I've talked about Josh Rosen a lot because he's been in the trade conversation. It, it was so hard to evaluate, you know, how good he was in Arizona with that, you know, such a poor supporting cast outside of Larry Fitzgerald. Everyone on that team was underperforming. I think that's, you know, selling it mi- mildly. I think the offensive line was objectively the worst in the NFL, both from a run blocking perspective and a pass blocking perspective, the worst in the NFL that made David Johnson worst and his receivers outside of Larry Fitzgerald, who had to play in the slot because he can't make it outside anymore, <laughs> weren't that good. And I think Josh Rosen moving him into a better system, I think he can have success. I think there's reasons to bet on his ceiling. This is a former first-round pick, top-five pick. You should go after this kind of guy. I think it makes it more sense, even if Case Keenum doesn't get shipped in that deal that would get Rosen in Washington, it makes way more sense to bet on a ceiling that is Josh Rosen than to bet on a ceiling that is Case Keenum. Case Keenum gets you to the playoffs, maybe, Josh Rosen could potentially be that quarterback of the future that you can build around market for and start to really turn this team into something that can be good year over, you know, years and years and years. However, with Case Keenum, he's a stopgap solution at best, at very best. And he's still a guy that's had one very good year when they ran play action a ton and had two of the best receivers in the NFL. I'm not 100% convinced that I want to build around Case Keenum as a stopgap solution if I can get Josh Rosen and at least see if he's good, especially if the trade capital they're asking for in Arizona is what is being reported as a second round pick. I'm all in. Let's go. I, I think build around this guy, see if he's worth his salt and go from there. Okay. Um, what do you think about, what do you know about the guy who has now been pegged as the next Sean McVay, Kevin O'Connell, who got promoted to offensive coordinator. They took uh, Kavanaugh's title away after he's been with the organization for 63 years and got promoted uh, temporarily when McVay left. But um, how much of that makes you think, okay, this might work. What do you know about O'Connell and like why he's being called the next wonder kid? I don't know a ton. I think it's, it's easy to call him wonder kid with the show, you know, Sean McVay and young coaches being and creative offensive coaches being there. But I think you have to prove it. I think it's one thing to be creative. It's one thing to be creative and successful. I think you have to see it. And I think you have to prove it before you're able to make these you know, jokes and you don't, you haven't seen these jokes come up or not necessarily jokes, but these claims come up about young coaches, creative coaches being these guys until Sean McVay's done it. And Sean McVay did it you know, with a good supporting cast. I think they made right moves there. I mean, the defense was outstanding. They had superstars at all three levels. And the quarterback play, he got the best out of Jared Goff, which I think is worth volumes of praise. But he had really good receivers, a great offensive line. It's, you know, a really, really good pass-blocking offensive line and run-blocking. Todd Gurley, Sean McVay's in a good situation. I'm not saying he's a bad coach, but I think it's harder to be the next Sean McVay than people are making it. I think that's not a, <laughs> that's not an overstatement. Yeah, um, I think the one thing that's most intriguing is that he's he, he comes out of that Patriots backup quarterback tree. So we can look forward to Brian Hoyer being a great offensive mind um, in 2023 when he's the quarterback coach for the New York Jets. And they're like, ooh, is he going to be uh, the next Sean McVay? Who knows? Um, we'll have to see. Um, is there anywhere else that you would rather see Rosen than um, watch? Is is there one schematic fit or what, something where you're like, okay, that might be the best situation for him? You know what? I was thinking about this. You know, Zach Taylor, Cincinnati Bengals, give him a chance. And I'm not saying Andy Dalton's, you know, he's a different level of quarterback than Case Keenum, but there are some question marks there. You put Josh Rosen in there in that scheme, let him learn it behind Andy Dalton. You decide if you want to keep rolling with the red rifle. If you don't like it, if you want to pull, you know, pull, pull out, you have Josh Rosen there. And if Zach Taylor likes Josh Rosen, it makes a hundred percent sense. Obviously, if he doesn't think he's the guy, you can move other places. But if he likes Josh Rosen even a little bit, I think you make that move, and then you have you know two. No, there's nothing wrong in the NFL with having two good quarterbacks. I think bringing in Josh Rosen, who I don't think it's an under, uh, overstatement to say he's a good quarterback. Bring Josh Rosen in. Have Andy Dalton obviously pegged as the starter to start. But if things start to go south like they have for years now, 
put Josh Rosen in there and see if he can, he, he can make some more plays and see if you can actually find a quarterback you want to build around. Is there any chance he's better than Kyler Murray? Oh, that's that's a great question. I think PFF is very, very high on Kyler Murray based off one year of data, which we have always, always stated. Small sample size is a huge concern with him, but just how good he was and seeing what we're seeing from the math when we do the analytics about where quarterback mobility and quarterback rushing can add value under center, Kyler Murray is very special. We don't care how short he is. We don't really care about the interview process. What he produced on the field at Oklahoma was insane. It wasn't as good as Baker Mayfield. He didn't do it for as many years as Baker Mayfield. But what he did was incredible and well worth investing in. I think I would take Kyler Murray over Josh Rosen right now, 100%. Okay. What do you think of Dwayne Haskins sliding to the number four quarterback taken in the draft? Do you buy it? It, it, it's I, I get it I, again one year sample size you can use that you know argument for both quarterbacks Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins but Dwayne Haskins one year sample size wasn't as good as what Kyler Murray's was there's questions about his accuracy there's questions about his mechanics and I think those question marks are fair you look at him against uh, when he's under pressure against the blitz sometimes he doesn't step up you have to question that footwork obviously as a one year starter you think that can improve but you have to nail the interview process to for quarterback coaches and, and GMs to think they can bet on you improving. I hope that's happening. I don't know. I'm not in those rooms, but you have to bet on him improving. He's a guy that needs to get better if he's going to be good in the NFL. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Haskins believer, but I'm also like one of those guys where it's like if he goes to 19 teams that I'm thinking of, I'm like, oh, that's not going to work. But there's like a handful where you're like, oh, yeah, that, like Kyler, I feel like would be good anywhere. Like Baker was going to probably be good anywhere. But then there's the other quarterbacks where it's like they need that right incubator. They need that right team that's going to mold them, that right offensive guy, that right system, that right offensive line. There just has to be a lot of caveats there. Um, personally, I hope he winds up with the Giants. I just think that's where he should go. The Giants have to pick a quarterback because I just this Eli stuff is ridiculous and extending it to 2021 is insane. Um and you just like what was the point of Barkley then you have to like if you're <laughs> but you can't just have Barkley just take up all of these carries and this oxygen on their offense for years and then have him get uh Todd Gurley in a couple of years and just that's when you take the quarterback is when you wasted all Saquon Barkley's uh good years it's all just very weird team building strategy but um I don't know like is there any chance Daniel Jones um is a better quarterback in NFL than Dwayne Haskins? I don't understand the Daniel Jones stuff. I don't buy it. I don't think he's a first-rounder. I don't think it's going to happen. No, he's not a first-rounder on our board. And you look at, you know, if quarterback wasn't as valuable of a position, I don't think you'd see a lot of quarterbacks after Kyler Murray high on our board. But because of how valuable quarterback is and how important that position is, you have to push a Dwayne Haskins, Will Greer, even Daniel Jones, Ryan Finley up more than they should be because – if they pan out, if that works, it changes everything. It changes the entire team. But I think I want to say this about the quarterback class. After Kyler Murray, the class gets tough. It's very hard because all the guys after him need to drastically improve in several areas to be good in the NFL. Therefore, you don't want these guys, the Dwayne Haskins, Ryan Finley, Daniel Jones, even Will Greer. You don't want those guys entering the NFL with ridiculous expectations, top 10 pick, top 15 pick expectations. But with how the NFL has gone and how every quarterback taken in what past three or four drafts has been traded up for, you can bet on all these kids entering the draft with stupid expectations. They're going to have to start in year one. What can we get out of this guy? It, it always It's happening more and more in today's NFL. And if that happens with a Ryan Finley, Will Greer, Dwayne Haskins, Daniel Jones, where they're just weighed down by these heavy expectations and forced to start maybe before they're ready, you're going to see them crash and burn because it's so hard to stay up above everything with all that weight and all that stuff crashing down on you when you throw three picks in your first game you can see it crash and burn i just really hope that the quarterbacks that are taken are put in situations where they're not asked to do too much too early do you think he would have benefited from staying one more year at ohio state absolutely i think quarterback position is one where you kind of should maybe stay an extra year develop as much as you can because unless your project is the number one overall pick the opportunity cost is is a little wild. I, I think with Dwayne Haskins staying another year, there's a good chance he's the top quarterback in next year's class. I like Justin Herbert. Tagaviola is great as well, but he stays another year and is able to show two years in a row that he's a, as, as outstanding as he was last year. Then you start to talk about number one overall pick. Now he's slipping. Maybe he's the fourth quarterback taken. Those questions come up because he's a one-year starter with a lot of work to get better. I think 
if he stayed, I think there's a good chance that he's the number one overall pick next year. That's and I don't think that's crazy. Interesting. Um, but I don't blame the kid. Like you injuries happen. You don't know what the situation could be like. Like Justin Fields just transferred. You don't know what's like it's just I can understand why players do this, but I also can understand like Saban's opinion where it's just like you want more time, you want more reps, and um it's tough. I, I don't envy the situation a lot of those kids are having to deal with of like do we risk injury and try and move up to a third round grade or do we just take the money now at a fifth round sixth round and then just play ourselves into that next contract it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a tough risk and it's i i don't like i said i don't envy those kids having to make that decision um last thing and then it can we'll backfire up here. You, you look at yeah you, you look you look at stanford's bryce love I mean, he yeah. was out. I mean, he had an incredible 2017 season. Mike Renner, close friend, colleague of mine, called him one of the best in between the tackles runners he's seen in you know recent draft classes from his 2017 tape. He gets hurt. 2018 tape doesn't look as good. Maybe he'll never be that same back again. Though that's when it backfires. And for the running back position, it's totally different. Injuries happen way more often. Your, you know, your youth is so much more important at that position. It makes a ton of sense to come out as early as possible as a running back because you know you're not going to last long in the NFL, even if you're the best. I think that's important. I think Bryce Love returning, I think he second guesses that choice. I hope that he can get better. I hope that he can be fully healthy again because what he did in 2017 was outstanding. But you have to admit that if he came out a year earlier, things would be different. All right, give me your favorite first-round draft prospect and your least favorite. Ooh, wow, what a great, what a great question. I think I'm going to go with a guy first round, Brian Burns out of Florida State. He's the guy that I've interviewed. He's the guy that's getting top ten hype. I think he's the number three edge defender in this class because of his bend, athleticism, what everyone talks about. The guy's a freak. I get that, but I like him for more than that. He's a very smart player. I asked him about how he wants to get better and where he wants to go in the NFL, where he sees himself. He's like, I need to develop a speed to power. I need to be, I need to have a bull rush. I need to have a counter to my spin and my outside rush. I can't just do push pull. I can't just do inside on chop. And he's just talking about all these moves and how he needs to get better, how he needs to add to his tool belt to hear that from a kid who's only 21 years old. He'll be 21 his entire rookie season to hear that from him how he wants to get better with all the natural tools he has. This guy's ceiling is stupidly high and obtainable. And that's what I love about that guy. He's my favorite first round prospect by far. Okay. Least favorite. Least favorite first rounder that's getting hyped. I think Rashawn Gary. I think Rashawn Gary is Mm. the same exact boat as a Brian Burns, as some of these athletic freaks, but you have to question his production at a school like Michigan. Michigan has produced some of the most technically sound defensive linemen in the last couple drafts. It's absurd. You look at Chase Winovich and how good that guy is, how technical he is, and how he's able to outproduce Rashawn Gary, who's an absolute freak former five-star. What's going on? The coaching's not different there. You look at Maurice Hurst, a technical monster coming into Oakland. Obviously, he had the heart, you know, heart issues to where that slipped him into the fifth round in the last year's draft, but still a stud, number three on PFF's draft board, you know, before the draft last year. You see these guys coming out of Michigan and how talented they are and how technically sound they are, and you don't see that with Sean Gary. You don't see the effort you want to see. Those are red flags I don't want, and you see him project as a top 10, top 15 pick scares me. Okay. All right. Is there anything uh, we need to check out on? I mean, obviously, folks, if you listen to the Chase Thomas podcast, um, you should be reading Pro Football Focus. It's what I check every day. It's, it's a great site. Um, is there anything uh, that you have coming out specifically this week that we should be on the lookout for? Two things I'll call out. Today, we dropped our top 250 big board. So if you want to see the 250 best players PFF thinks are the best players entering this draft class. Go ahead and check that out. That's free for everyone. And tomorrow, my interview with Notre Dame wide receiver Miles Boykin goes live. The video and article will be out early morning tomorrow. I definitely recommend checking in at profootballfocus.com to see that. He's a smart dude, very smart guy who's fun to talk to. And I think he, with his athleticism, is another guy that is only going to get better in the NFL. Okay. Well, we can follow you on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale. We can read you at profootballfocus.com. Austin, thank you so much and keep up the great work, man. Thank you. Have a good one. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. 
And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.